How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to the broadcast. We are delighted to have former Congressman Bob McEwen, a dear friend for, goodness, 24 years and counting maybe. I don't know, Bob, when we first met, but a while. And you spent 12 years in the House of Representatives, correct? Correct. And I won't go through your bio. We'll put that in the show notes. But you are now the president of an organization that I suspect a lot of people don't know about. Tell us a little bit about the Council for National Policy. Well, there have been three times in which the Republican Party violated the establishment and chose their own candidate. One was in 1964 with Barry Goldwater, and then they taught them a lesson, don't do that again. And then Reagan was able to do it in 1980 and then in 2016 with Donald Trump. And when it does, it upsets the establishment of the people who are in control. And in 1980, when Reagan won, he then took George Bush as his running mate and as part of the establishment. And some folks were not satisfied with his contribution to the ticket, to the effort. And they had a little come to Jesus meeting about two months out from right about a little bit earlier than this in the campaign and said, you're not helping. They're attacking the presidential candidate, Governor Reagan. And for those that remember that time, he was just as despised as Trump is. They Mm. just called him a crazy man. He was a racist and he, he was going to blow up the world and just all this kind of thing. And so in the meeting, George Bush said, why don't you conservatives trust me? And they mentioned that he belonged to all these liberal organizations. And he said, well, you conservatives don't have anything like that. And when he did, the room got real quiet because they said, can't argue with that. That's probably true. Mm. So in March of 1981, after Ronald Reagan became president, basically the people in that room, the Finance Committee for Ronald Reagan and conservative leadership across the country, the president of the Heritage Foundation, the president of the National Rifle Association, Rich DeVos, head of Amway, different political leaders and business leaders got together and formed the Council for National Policy. It meets three times a year for the purpose of bringing together conservative thought leaders. And I emphasize the fact we don't do anything. That is that we bring people together and we augment what they do. And so Liz and I joined the third meeting about seven or eight years ago, I became the head of it. And the president of the United States recently, as when a lot of these meetings were canceled over the last couple of months, the one place that he could come and talk to everybody was at our meeting in August. And so the president was there, vice president comes regularly. And it's a fun organization of Bible-believing conservative Americans. Now, if you can, give us a list of some of the organizations that are part of your organization. Well, we don't do any publicity. Our meetings are off the record, and we don't publish our membership right. list. Okay. Those that are known are, you know, like I say, the Heritage Foundation is a major part. In fact, a recent dinner was held at the White House with the president of the leaders of the conservative organization. So you had Penny Nance, who was head of Concerned Women for America, and you had Leonard Leo, who was the Federalist Society and Ralph Reed, and the list goes on. But there were about 12 people at the table. All were there because of their positions as conservative leaders. And interestingly enough, they were all also members of CNP, Council for National Policy. I've spent some time on your website. Interesting you say that because you don't find any, you know, you have a member login section, but otherwise it's a little bit difficult to say, okay, what are you guys actually doing? Which is why I wanted you to give us an overview. So let's talk about our upcoming election. And 
let's acknowledge a lot of people struggle to vote for President Trump. Some of his tweets, some of his social media comments, some of his personality, you know, swinging. It disenfranchises folks. Help us out on how we understand that. Well, the country is changing very rapidly, and we've been bringing in millions of people that were not born in America, and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton mean nothing to them. And so the underpinning of the significance of the 4th of July and things like that that bind us together as a nation has begun to fray. And as a result, they could focus on what they did in other countries. That is, that they focus on race and on gender and things that divide. The uniqueness of America was e pluribus unum, from many one. That is, that anybody could become an American, because an American is spiritual. You can't become Japanese or Chinese. That's physical. But anybody can become an American, because an American is spiritual. And that's what always brought us together with one cause. Now, what has happened recently is that they've begun to drive wedges between the folks, and so that if you're from big city, or if you're male, or if you're a Christian, or if you're heterosexual, or if you're this, that, or the other thing, that they divide people up. And Republicans have not been skilled at playing at that game. So, for example, when Mitt Romney was running for president, the leader of the Senate, majority leader, Harry Reid, said on the floor of the Senate, where he has immunity, he said the same thing that the New York Times just did to the president last week, and that is that Romney has not paid his taxes for over 10 years, and he had good information that that was the case. Well, in order to do that, what you do is you throw these charges out if you have no principle, and then you make the principle people have to respond. And so Romney tried, well, that's not fair, and that's not true, and I do pay my taxes. So I saw an interview with Harry Reid a couple of years ago in which they brought that up to him. He said, you know, 10 years ago, you made that charge, and you knew it wasn't true. And he got a little smile on his face, and he looked in the camera, and with a little twinkle in his eye, he said, well, we won, didn't we? Mm -hmm. I remember that, yeah. So you can see that that's their goal. Now, that way they win. <laughs> so we were blessed with a candidate who's never run for office before. That's never happened in history, that we've had a presidential leader who has never commanded troops in the field or run for political office. And he is a New York street fighter. And so had Harry Reid said that to him, here's the way he would have responded. He would have said, Harry Reid came to Washington 30 years ago with holes in his shoes and an empty suitcase. He's now worth $66 million. Why? Because he's a liar, a cheat, and a fraud. And now when he does that, all the Republicans clutch their pearls and collapse to take the vapors. But for street <laughs> fighters in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago, they know exactly what that what is. Doing? Why they're back and why they're so offended because he plays their rule. He wasn't a Republican. He knows how to fight like a Democrat, and he's successful, and that really does frustrate him. You know, it's funny you observe about the New York street fighter, because when we had Obama in the White House, I would often comment, having lived in Chicago a few years, I go, what you need to understand is you've got a Chicago way of doing business in the White House. And I said, it's analogous to what we have a New York way of doing things. Here's a man who's built buildings and had to deal with unions and construction and city laws that are, you know, strangling to most people. And he's navigated that successfully. So, you know, in some degree, it's while I would say, and you might disagree, it's not always becoming the office. It is who he is. And you articulated he'd never been in office before. So some of the, you know, the presidential nature of the office that we might say would be nice. But help out the younger Christian, Bob, who says, you know, I can't vote for a guy like that. Okay, you say that. He's a street fighter, but I can't support things he said. Well, the question is, what does he do? And, and our country was on the cusp 
of really, really being in trouble. Let's just walk through some things. If you go to the Federal Reserve Board of St. Louis, if you go to their website, you will see on the cover there, they have the median American family income. And for 1996, 2006, 2016, that's 20 years until Donald Trump becomes president, it's absolutely flat. It's only $200 difference in that 20-year period. Now, during that same time, the Chinese were growing at 6, 8, 9%. And so what was happened was for the first time in our history, when you and I put money in the bank, we got our little jobs, we went there to borrow to buy a car or to buy a house or to fund the church or whatever needed to be done in the community. About 25 years ago, under the World Trade Organization, they decided that China was going to be a developing nation. They would get all times special tax credits for it. And so what happened was New York began sucking money out of Main Street package those funds, investing in China, and that's where the new jobs were created, the overpasses, the sewer systems, the high-rises, all inventions, the other things that were financed there, and America was in a state of collapse. Now, it was just about, it was just about to be overtaken. China has had a systematic program called the supply chain. That is, the, the parts to make a Mercedes, the parts to make a Cadillac, the parts to make a Samsung refrigerator, the parts to, all that little pieces of it had to be built in China so that it then had a stranglehold on all of the manufacturing in the Western Hemisphere. Donald Trump comes along and says two things. Now, he's the only one that does this, by the way. He says to those multi-multi-billionaires that are sucking America dry and investing in our adversaries, and in the process of it, America is atrophying. It can't make these things anymore. So the president of the United States, George W. Bush, gave a waiver that the chips that are in our F-16, our F-18s, in our defense computers would come from China. We were becoming increasingly dependent in every way. Donald Trump comes in and says, nonsense. It's like he went over and flipped on the light. He said, what is the matter with you people? And Mercedes-Benz wakes up and slaps their forehead and said, I can't believe we've done this. And so they start to withdraw some of their parts. And America says, we're not going to invest over there anymore. We're going to start investing back in America. And jobs begin to be created here. The money from George Washington to Donald Trump, 2016, you take the investment in the entire stock market, then you increase it 50% in just three months. 50%. So in the process of doing that, America begins to come back, but China goes down 50%. America goes up. Now, they were about to be surpassed. We're about to be surpassed by China. But now we have these new jobs being created. America's getting its footing again. People are recognizing that America stands for righteousness in the world. When a ship is attacked on the high seas, that America is the only person to whom they can turn, the banking, all the rest. So as America is beginning to prosper, there are those that hate America and want to use all of their billions to destroy America. And what is the single focus? That is the president of the United States. You replace him with a wimp, who's somebody who is beholden to China, and you're going to see America slip right back to where it was. And that's what this election is all about. Now, for young people that not be able to see that, I'm really probably not the best person to explain as to why people shouldn't. I mean, it's very apparent to me. And when young people say, well, you know, but he says this or says that, therefore I can sell out my country, it doesn't compute real well. The president called the other night, and we, after we finished talking, I said, you got another few seconds, I'd like to say something. And he said, go ahead, Bob. I said, at Pearl Harbor, when the Imperial Japan attacked America, they did it for one reason, because they wanted to take down the United States. And when the Battle of the Bulge at Christmas 1940, when the Nazis used everything possible and offensive to destroy, they did it to take down America. 
I said, now all of those resources, all of that hatred, all of that bombardment, all of that evil is focused on one place, Mr. President, one place. It's not Pearl Harbor and it's not the Ardennes. It's on one man and one person. That's the president of the United States. He takes you down. He takes America down. And we're right back in the soup where we were in which our children are being taught all sorts of perversion in our school. And we have nothing to say about it. The judges tell us that the sisters of the poor have to perform abortions or else they're out of business. We're back in the place that we were. I said, all of that focus is on one man. And I want you to know that around the globe are tens of millions of people that are praying for your success. In that context, Michael, I've done, as you know, dozens of presidential prayer breakfasts around the globe. And whether it be in Buenos Aires or Ukraine or El Salvador or wherever, half of the prayer breakfast always focuses on their own country, the diplomatic corps and the parliamentarians and others. But they spend half of their prayers always praying for the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Every on mm -hmm. earth knows that their peace, their stability, their safety is dependent upon the proper leadership in America, and there's nothing they could do about it. It's up to the kids in the United States to focus on, well, he said this or didn't say that. They can't comprehend why they're chanting death to America every Friday in Tehran. They don't fully grasp why that is. When Donald Trump went to Riyadh, that 54 Muslim heads of state came there because under Obama and Biden, we had given billions of dollars to develop a nuclear weapon for the Shiites in Iran that hate Israel, that hate the Sunnis. And when Donald Trump showed up, every last one of them came to express their gratitude that America now has a leader that was interested in stability and peace in the Middle East, as we've seen take place. So when you look at what happens and what can happen and what is happening, then for those that take the vapors because he says a damn or a hell periodically, which I wish he wouldn't do, but I just have to confess that when you're in New York, I just don't think you hear it. And for the rest of us from the Midwest and the South, we hear it every single time and mm -hmm. it's frustrating. Mm -hmm. But in the scheme of things, it's minor in my judgment. I have this theory and it's, you know, anecdotal at best that, you know, during MLK and JFK's time, had we social media, we would have had as much of a dispirited and antagonistic world. We don't know our history has been one of my chief complaints. During the Civil War, I doubt there was civility on the floor. You know, these people were fighting and killing, you know, brothers and families that were in the same country over policy issues. I also find it fascinating, Bob, that it's lost on not just young people, but Americans in general. Yes, we had slaves. Yes, we had injustice. Yes, we had, you know, women's suffrage. Yes, we, but those things were corrected here when they were not in other countries. And so the ongoing vilification of America, albeit some of it is due to point out our errors of the past, I don't think we're given the chit, if you will, to say, yes, but we worked to correct those things. Well, we created the standard for righteousness. See, prior to July 4th, 1776, slavery was ubiquitous. It was everywhere, always has been, all throughout scriptures, everywhere. There came a day when 56 Americans decided from henceforth, slavery is going to be anathema. And we're going to start to point the figure at it, and we're going to change it. And over the course of our lifetime, our lifetimes are halfway through, and we've lived under that condition, but we're going to change it. And from now on, around the globe, people are going to look at Daniel Webster and look at Alexander Hamilton and look at James Madison, look at George Washington, look at Thomas Jefferson. Those people ended slavery. 
Now, that's a source of frustration to folks that don't like that level of perfection that America holds for the rest of the world. But nevertheless, what you said is 100% correct. And did every Democrat immediately sign up? No, no. I mean, they fought and tore the country apart. And then after we changed the Constitution, it said you had to treat them equally, the 14th Amendment, not one Democrat voted for it. You had to have equal protection. And they said, now you got to treat people fairly. And we found out that Jim Crow, the Democrats still wouldn't do it. And so they kept fighting. And they've had this thing going for so long that we've been constantly fighting against it. And God works on the heart. But up until the time that, as Madison said, if man were angels and we wouldn't need government. Yeah, but there is, there's never been government as perfect. or as. Although pure. I would disagree because there were some fallen angels we need to talk about for another time. <laughs> Let's change gears a bit. Social justice, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, these organizations have taken a new headline, if you will, and we have all kinds of commentary about, you know, what's right and wrong about them. And Black Lives Matter, for example, I see young people on my social media account who put up their black square, who say, say the name, who support, you know, all these efforts. And it grieves me, Bob, because part of it is a lack of reading. I was talking to our friend Wayne Grudem the other day about this. I said, you know, when I post something on social media that's an article or a podcast, and within a few seconds people like it, or retweet it, I go, all that proved was they didn't read it or listen to it. <laughs> so social media knee-jerk responses don't mean anything. It's just we're going after a tag or a headline. And so when you see younger people, and I wouldn't just say younger people, but you know, folks in general who have these knee-jerk reactions, who support these social justice outcries, how do we help them? How do we talk about it without getting all, you know, apoplectic and lathered up to give them a bearing of, you know, good versus evil, of truth versus, you know, falsehood? How do you joust these arguments without becoming in the mud with folks? You've got it. And see, throughout history, there's a great book called The 5,000-Year Leap. If anybody ever wants to understand America, the world was flatlined for 5,000 years. The people in the time of Christ and the people in the time of King David and the people in the time of the founding of America, they all traveled the same way. It was flat. And suddenly in the last 250 years, there's been an explosion, a leap. And it describes what America is. It has 28 chapters. Each chapter is about two to three pages. And the fundamentals of America. And America changed all of those things. And that is based upon a biblical value of respect for individuals. When that happened in 1776, two things took place, economically and politically. We mentioned about politically, where we said that because God made us, that we're equal. Nobody had ever done that before. And, of course, they protected life. Now, notice the sequence there, the God who gave us life gave us liberty at the same time, as Jefferson said. So if you want to get rid of liberty, you have to get rid of God first. Then having gotten rid of God, then you go after life. Then having gotten rid of life, then you go after liberty. And that's where they can tell you that you can't sit out here and eat because I'm going to come steal your food or I'm going to blow your house up or I'm going to burn you and all. So when we go to the lack of liberty that comes from that, that is what communism is. Communism is where government takes away private property. And in 1776, two things happened, not only the rights of the individual, but also free enterprise, where people could invest jointly to create more wealth than they could personally consume, which raised the standard of living from that 5,000-year flatline that we talked about, 
where people didn't have central heat and they didn't have electricity and they didn't have all the things that came with the freedom that came through free enterprise. Now, when that began to happen and suck people into working, then children were brought in, everybody, because now for the first time they could actually produce more than they could consume and rather than starving to death and the lifespan being at 28 and 30 and 32, now it's beginning to grow. In the process, the communists said, Karl Marx and Engels said, that the people who work versus the people who own the factories the people who own the factories will never give them more than a subsistence level. They will barely ever survive. And now what we discovered over the next 100 years is that was a lie. And that the people, the workers began to have second homes and began to have second cars and began to have boats and began to have trailers. And they actually liked the system. And so beginning in the last century, they began to shift because taking away people's freedom, taking away their right to life and liberty, having government control them wasn't working under communism selling that pitch because they were all poor. So they began to switch to race. And if they could divide people by race. So prior to the 1970s, there was no Hispanic race. But then we're going to separate people out. We're going to separate women, Hispanics, we're going to take blacks, and we're going to drive these wedges between all these folks and make things up that there were just absolutely that a little knowledge begins to drive it away. Knowledge overcomes error, by the way. And so that's where Candace Owens and these folks are becoming so powerful because they're giving the actual truth. If you just take blacks in America and you put all their wealth in a pile, it's the 18th richest nation on the planet, richer than any dozen nations in the continent of Africa. So all of these ideas that America is so evil, they begin to recognize America is infinitely better. And But then they still have to lie. And one of the things that they try to sell, and you and I, of course, would just scratch your heads at the absurdity of this, and that is that America, as we know, was born in 1776. But if you go back 150 years before that, that supposedly some black slaves were brought in, and by the way, they were sold to black landowners. In the process of that slavery operation, they said that because they didn't pay them their weekly salary, that from that period back then, all wealth was created. Now stop and think about that just for a second. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that America is wealthy because 150 years before it was born, some people were not given paychecks, but instead they were given housing and slavery. Those are the people that believed in slavery prior to the Civil War. They believed in Jim Crow after the Civil War. They still believe in, to this day that slavery is powerful and Black Lives Matter is headed by three women who are anti-men, anti-family. They are lesbian activists and Marxist organizers. If you don't think so, just go to the website and read what they say about themselves. And Black Lives Matters is for the purpose of upending a Christian family-oriented America. And when you put that little seal on your website, you're saying that the America that stands for righteousness in the world, that is the source of 85 cents out of every dollar that goes for global evangelism. That is, if you take all the money that goes to further the gospel from the entire continent, from the entire planet, and you increase it five and a half times, that's still not as much as America gives. And so since America is the lighthouse for the gospel, and these people are dedicated to doing away with religious freedom, doing away with the family, doing away with heterosexual marriage, that you then put that little block on your website saying, I support taking down and destroying America, doing away with biblical principles. When a person does that, then you and I naturally are standing around scratching our heads because we know there's going to be no place else for us to go. Why do you think this shift, though, it's, you know, I mean, I know there's no one answer. I remember Alan Bloom's closing of the American mind was such a landmark book in so many ways. And he laid most of the blame for the lack of what I call critical thinking at the university. 
He said, when we moved away, he was a big Plato guy. And he said, when you started having liberal arts courses, let's just say, you know, African-American studies or language studies or women's studies, all that are great electives. He said, but when those became mainstay degrees in the university, and then you hire professors who are tenured in those particular liberal arts areas, you've moved away from a critical thinking theory in the university, teaching students how to think how to understand argument, how to understand right from wrong. And you started to indoctrinate them, essentially. So, you know, it's like any college curriculum. If you have a four-year program and you require X, you know, hours of some subject, you've got to get rid of something else. So we jettisoned teaching history. The revisionists got a hold of what history books were still in the university. So the university has a very slow cooker that has changed the minds of young men and women. And in my you know, short experience with college-age kids, they do not have critical thinking skills. They are very motivated by the here and now. I call it experiential theology, how I feel about something as opposed to a substantial what is right, what is wrong, how do I critically think through these issues. And so we see the social justice issue come to light, and we see, you know, unfortunately, horrible video of African Americans with, you know, a police's knee on his neck, and it kills him, allegedly. And it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, those images are seared forever. And so a person with any sense of conscience will go, of course that's wrong. And that then drives a movement of young minds that says we have to defund the police, we have to overturn and create something new. And that's a grass fire, Bob. And I don't know that, you know, let's say our party, if you want to, I don't know that we're responding well to these issues. Well, you're 100% correct. As you know, the Black Lives Matter movement is primarily very, very vicious, mad, 30-year-old females, white females. And I came out of the White House after the president's speech, and you have to walk down the street where these people with their screaming, vicious, diabolical, demonic howls and their obscene gestures as they're screaming and yelling. And then when I got down to the Trump Hotel, I just slipped back in the bushes just to watch as these hordes of people, they would descend on average Americans. So the Black Lives Matter is overwhelmingly white females that are driving the thing. But what is interesting is that in all of the chaos that's taking place at the moment, Michael, there is a distinct possibility that for the thing that has not changed the paradigm for the last 400 years has been higher education. And it's still operated in this bubble and where they began to, as you mentioned, they began to arrogate into themselves a sense of right and wrong based upon their own values and not upon biblical values as they've jettisoned those and created this chaos that is now you have degrees that are worthless and people are less talented and men are not going. So what we're seeing is now that rather than paying $300,000 to look at a screen to get a degree from Harvard versus $3,000, one from a local university, that paradigm is really, really coming under stress. And there's a potential that we can see genuine change take place, which is, as I say, a century overdue. But truth overcomes error, and truth will always win. That's why only the left burns books. Only the left shouts down speakers. Only the left doesn't allow one conservative professor, because one conservative professor's truth will overcome 30 error. Hmm. And that's where we are. And quickly, in the context of emotion, that the most effective tool that a person can use to get people to not think is fear. 
Perfect love casts out all fear, for fear hath torments. And he hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now, those are the opposites. When you're fearful, you're weak. You can't love a person that you are afraid of. A sound mind, you don't think straight when you're fearful. I had a friend that was frustrated when he saw the pictures of these Jewish fathers loading their children onto the boxcars in mm. Nazi Germany. And he couldn't understand. He said, if you look at the end of the loading dock, there's one guy down there with a rifle. The fathers could have overrun him. Well, why did they do this? And the way that they did it was they used fear. And that is, why do all the Jews have to move into this section of town? Well, it's to keep you safe, to protect you. Why are you building the walls around? Well, that's to keep you safe. Well, why are you putting gates and guards at the end? Well, that's to keep you. Why must I wear this yellow star? Well, not everybody likes you. And so there are police need to know where you are so that they can protect you to keep you safe. And so then they bring the fathers in and they say, you know, the war is not going well, but we're going to move you to a safer place where there are better schools and better housing. I want you to go home and I want you to catalog your paintings and piano and all. And But tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock, you need to bring just an overnight bag, just enough. And we need you to bring your family quietly onto the train. We're going to move to a safer place. And then we'll take the inventory. We'll come back and we'll move those things in a few weeks. But your wife is going to react to the way you react and your children are going to react the way that both of you. And so you must be solid. It's going to be uncomfortable. A couple of hours uncomfortable here in the boxcar. But in the end, you're going to be safe. And so the reason you have to wear that swastika is because we're for your safety that we're going to do that. And of course, we know what happened. And so the spirit of fear that is the opposite of what God has given us, when it grips a nation or a people, it becomes very dangerous. Let's switch gears a bit. So the election's coming up. And let's say President Trump wins on November 3rd. We know from a lot of rhetoric and a lot of whether it's political pundits or other operatives saying we're going to challenge the election, Joe Biden should not concede, etc. They're sort of preemptively saying Trump will not leave the White House. So we've got this foment brewing. What happens legally at the night of the election? And we can probably expect challenges to occur. Well, Paul Harvey used to say that you cannot have self-government without self-discipline. And the uniqueness of America was that we laid down power and left. And we solved for the very first time in our history, genuinely, in 2016, where they thought they could overthrow the president. You had the original effort by Hollywood to try to get the Electoral College votes to violate their rules. And then you saw where the FBI and the Justice Department sought to bring down the president. They met in the Oval Office with Biden and Obama on January 5th. Now, that's 15 days, two weeks before they're leaving office. And they explained to him that in all of their efforts to try to find something on Russia, they weren't able to do it. And they're going to have to close it down because the new president is coming in. There's nothing more they can do. And Biden said, nope, go after the national security advisor for negotiating with foreign powers. We'll just charge him with it, whether it's true or not. Obama told the Justice Department to stay at him. And we saw then for the next two years, a tremendous effort to undo this president, unlike anything we've ever seen in American history, down to the point where efforts to impeach him just fell flat. And finally, they did impeach him on some silliness that nobody can even recall the stupidity of it, a 15 minute phone call. So that now they've said, we failed to steal America. So this time, we're not going to let that happen. So three weeks ago at Harvard with George Soros funding, they went through a mock scenario. And this is all available in an article by Michael Anton, who was on the National Security Council. It's called The Coming Coup. If you ever want to Google it, the American mind, The Coming Coup, in which he describes how they're going to do this. 
and that they're going to have the Democrat governors refuse to certify the election by the Electoral College. That will throw it into courts. And if they can delay it, delay it, delay it, they think that every day that they can delay it, they always win in the end. And of course, a little side note is that if they don't choose a president by January 20th, then the Speaker of the House takes over. And of course, they would love to have the first woman president, even if she's only president for a week. So they're going to do everything humanly possible. So for those who I repeat, take the vapors because he is such a strong leader that the alternative is very, very severe. Final point. As you know, I'm in an accountability group with some folks that one of them was the chief of staff for Ronald Reagan at Sacramento and his attorney general, Ed Meese, one of my closest friends. Ed said the other day, he said, Bob, you know, America has only been threatened with destruction once. And that was in the reelection of Abraham Lincoln in 1864. Hmm. Had Abraham Lincoln lost that re-election, McClellan was going to immediately sue for peace. North America would have been the United States. South would have been the Confederacy. West of the Mississippi would have been a third country. America would have disappeared. He said, the only other time that that has happened, in my judgment, is right now. And both of them are from within. He said, during World War II, we knew we were going to win. We didn't know how much treasure it was going to cost and how much blood it was going to cost. But we knew that we were not going to allow Nazis to come into Shillicothe, Ohio, and run our country. It was not going to happen. Americans would fight for their freedom. The only way America has ever been threatened is from within. And we see it right now in an effort by those who clutching the revised standard versions and saying that they can't vote for certain people under certain circumstances are in an effort to undermine this standard for righteousness in the world. So, scenario B, Joe Biden wins. Well, if he does, then we're going to see a reversal. They say, this is not Humphrey Nixon. This is not Carter Ford. These are people who have said they want to do away with justice. They want to do away with policemen. If they want to steal what's on your plate at a restaurant, they can do it. If they want to come in and take what's in your factory, they can do it. Whenever the Democrat platform talks about religious liberty, it only mentions one thing, one thing, LGBT, to allow those bigots that say that marriage is between a man and a woman, we are not going to allow them to do that. We are going to tell them that whether they are have a bakery or whether they have a flower shop or whether they're a church or they're hiring someone to teach their young people or they're running an abortion, running an adoption agency, that we will tell them what the standard is for right and wrong in the way of marriage of male and female. That's what he's committed to doing. And if we vote to do that to America, I'm very concerned as to whether or not how we get back from the brink from that. I hope that people understand that we're going to stand before God and give account. And for all of those folks, those Christians that are under attack in the Middle East and in the Central Africa being attacked by the radicals in the Congo and elsewhere, and they're pleading for America to come to their aid. If we turn our back on Christians around the globe, then I think that's a dangerous place to put ourselves in, and I pray we don't do it. Was it Justice Stevens? I was trying to recall this and look it up the other day, and I failed. But when the Obergefell decision came down, was it Justice Stevens who said the test of this is not going to be Obergefell, the test is going to be religious freedom? Because it's one thing to say you can have a civil marriage. It's another thing, how are you going to allow churches and Christian groups who say, uh, we believe marriage is between one man and one woman for life. And so I knock on the door. It's not bake the cake or make the floral arrangement. It's you must marry me. 
You don't have to accept me. You must endorse and celebrate me. And then, of course, that will go to litigation. He was the one that prognosticated, once you open this door, it's inevitable. It's not going to be baked the cake. It's going to be perform the service, and then you're going to see an upheaval. You and I have seen this in our lifetime. The mainline denominations, with very few exceptions, have all completely changed their position on the view of marriage. Wayne Grubb and I discussed the egalitarian versus complementarian issue for years. And, you know, that issue is, oh, by the way, I mean, it's gone. And so now we're facing the LGBTQAI next letter. What's going to happen when those groups say, you must marry me. We've been in this church. We grew up here. We want this. And this is one of my concerns just from a freedom of religion and the freedom to express thought. I envision how does this work in a mosque? Yeah. You know, how does this work when you go to the American Muslims and say you have to do this, which that's a third rail. That'll never happen in our lifetime. But that to me is the concern that I have is that the checks and balances are gone for you and I believed in the sanctity of life and that marriage was between one man and one woman. That was our father's Oldsmobile. This generation of younger Christians is looking at social justice and LGBT rights. That is their God in the sense that, you know, that's more important than life and marriage. Am I wrong? And it's very simple. It's the question in the garden. There is only two worldviews, Michael, and you were quoting Justice Scalia there, and he's exactly right, because they'll be able to come in and say, you must hire me to teach your young people. And in the Democrat platform, by the way, it says on day one, on January 20th, that they're going to do away with the separate bathrooms, that they're going to allow men to walk into women's bathrooms if they so choose, if they feel that day, because there are only two worldviews, only two. Either you believe that man created God, or you believe that God created man. And if you believe that man got here on his own, then you believe he's his own standard, and he can decide these things. And America was not ambivalent on that. We hold these truths to be self-evident. All men are created. John 1.1, 1, 1, man is endowed by his creator. We were based upon the fact that God gives us rights. When you abandon that, then man becomes supreme. And there is no limit to which man cannot sink without God. And that's what this battle is all about. And those that hate, you see their faces contort and you see the screaming and the yelling. And they have seen gestures that come from the Black Lives Matter Democrat receptionists when they march up and down the street. And what color do they use? And what do they do? They cover their face. All of the things that have throughout history is what they've always done. They hate righteousness. And they're going to come after America because America is the standard for righteousness in the world. If we vote to do that to ourselves, I don't know where the rest of the world goes from here. Honorable Congressman Bob McEwen, longtime friend, a patriot, believer in God, faith, and freedom. I mean, you're kind of a dinosaur, Bob. <laughs> I know that this country was in a spiral. It was in a genuine spiral. And God gave us a leader that had the backbone and the brass to turn it around. And you look at what has happened to the Supreme Court. You look at what happened to manufacturing. You look what happened to our national defenses. You look at what happened in Israel. You look across the board. You can see that America has the capacity to rise if you and I endorse it properly, make sure that everybody we know gets out and votes because they're going to steal every vote that they can. And we pray to God they're not just successful. He did it for us in 2016. He can do it again. My friend, thank you for your time and your comments and pray God's blessing on you and your family and grandkids, my friend. 
Thank you, Michael. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.